Welcome back to another exciting edition of Pointless Exercise. I'm Andy, and I have with me tonight the guy who I think you'll all agree is your favorite guest on this podcast. He needs no introduction. It's just me. You're stuck with just me. As we round up, we've got uh, spring training coming, which uh, means we'll have more with Kyle and Sam, unless he commits podcast Harry Carey if the Cubs trade Chris Bryant. Um, got some more guests uh, coming up, but this week, going to have to settle for just my uh, my inane ran- rantings. Um, I I like it because honestly, my favorite part of the podcast is um, when I talk, and not the points in between when I stop talking and wait for the other person to stop so then I can start again. It's not like we don't have things to talk about. So uh, let's get started. I'm going to do this in some semblance of order here, but God knows how it'll end up. So I want to start with the uh, the Mookie Betts trade. Um, because as I think we're all afraid that it is mere foreshadowing of uh, of a trade that we really don't want to have happen for the Cubs. And I guess one of the disturbing things is that ever since Tom, ever since Joe Ricketts bought the Cubs for his kids, Tommy's um, goal has seemed to have been to make the Cubs as much like the Red Sox as possible. Some of it makes perfect sense. You've got um, you've got a franchise that has a had a historic but kind of crappy ballpark in the middle of a neighborhood and uh, money needed to be poured into it to to bring it up to current standards. Um, You had really long championship droughts. Um, And then then over the course of time, obviously the Red Sox, the John Henry group has had tremendous success. They've won four World Series since he's been there. Um, The Cubs actually I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but the Cubs actually won a World Series. Uh, the Red Sox have bought a lot of the property around Fenway Park. The Cubs, the Ricketts family, has bought a lot of the property around Wrigley Field. Um, and obviously both had Theo Epstein. Theo hired a Hall of Fame manager in both places and won his championships. And now, unfortunately, it appears that the uh, the Ricketts family's transfiction with uh, duplicating all things Red Sox could also include, you know, trading their best player just because they are afraid to try to pay them. Um, you know, for the Red Sox, it's it's a little more complicated than the Cubs right now because Mookie Betts, who's a great player, probably the second best player in baseball behind uh, Mike Trout. They were $150 million apart, supposedly. The Red Sox were the ones who leaked the numbers, so who knows how close they really were. Um, It could be that they're closer than that, and they just decided they didn't want to pay it. And so they acted like they were $150 million apart. But maybe they were. Um, So the Red Sox wanted to get under the luxury tax. Because, God, you wouldn't want to be over the luxury tax. You may have to dip into your piggy bank. And pay it. And you know how, how do rich guys get rich? Um, they don't pay for things they don't have to. And they don't pay taxes on uh, anything. And the luxury tax is, by definition, a tax that they don't want to pay. So, you know, the Red Sox went and traded Mookies in the last year, unlike Chris Bryant, who has two years left, thanks to the, uh, the arbitrator's decision. Um, so Mookie's in the last year of his deal, which means the Red Sox were faced with let him play it out this season and maybe leave and be get nothing but a compensation pick for him, um, or keep him. And here's a crazy thought, um, try to win a world series, but they decided they were going to trade him. And, and then the part of the trade that I think is especially scary, if you're a Cub fan, is the Red Sox 
took the opportunity to trade bets and, in order to get under the luxury tax threshold, uh, bundle a really bad contract with him, uh, which on its face seems fine. So yeah, you want Mookie, you got to take David Price. Um, but what it does is it cuts down on the return that you're going to get. You know, if the Dodgers are like, well, if we have to take David Price and, you know, whatever percent of his salary, um, it looks like the <clears throat> Dodgers are going to pay $14.8 million of the $32 million owed uh, Price this year um, to keep themselves under the luxury tax after the series of maneuvers that they made to get the best player on the market and stay under the threshold. So if you're going to take all that money, you're you're not going to want to give up your best prospects. It's like, well, no, it's one or the other. We're either going to give you young players or um, we're going to give you luxury tax relief. We're not going to do both. And so the return for Mookie is kind of laughably bad, or at least thin. Uh, Alex Verdugo, outfielder for the Dodgers, who I only know because I had him on my fantasy team last year. And um, he was pretty good until he fell off a lawn chair, whatever he did, and got hurt and missed the end of the season. Um, Good, but not, you know, I don't think anybody thinks he's going to turn into a great player. And then a guy named... Bruce Don Gatterall, which I'm sure I said completely wrong, who's actually coming from the Twins in the deal. Um, But uh, those are the two assets that the Red Sox are getting. In their mind, they got more than that. They got out from under Mookie Betts' contract, because God forbid, why would you want to pay $27 million for the second-best player in baseball? And they get enough relief on Price's deal this year that it will get them under the luxury tax because apparently that's the most important thing you can do right now. I'm sure that they can hang a banner for that. That'll be very exciting for everybody. And then an interesting part of this trade was in order to get, in order to get the pitcher that they, that the, uh, um, that the Red Sox wanted, the Dodgers traded Kenta Maeda to the twins for Gatterall and then sent him along to Boston, although right as we speak right now, or as I, I guess it's me that's doing the speaking, uh, Gatterall's uh, physical uh, didn't go so well, and the deal is kind of in limbo, although I don't think anybody expects that it'll just collapse. What may happen is, God forbid, the Dodgers might actually have to trade an actual prospect of their own gasp to the Red Sox, and then work out a separate deal with Maeda to the Twins. It's funny that Maeda was in this deal, given that it was the same, uh, you know, just a week ago we got the unofficial uh, announcement that the Chris Bryant grievance had been uh, ruled on. Because if anybody in baseball ought to be filing a grievance, it's Kenta Maeda. So a few years ago, Maeda signed a slightly below market contract with the Dodgers because he really wanted to pitch in LA. That was that was worth it to him. And the Dodgers put some escalators in his deal so that for innings pitch starts made, he'd start to make more money. So basically the the, the thought of it was if Kenta stays healthy and relatively productive, he's going to get paid. But what the Dodgers have done <laughs> since he signed that contract is basically turn Maeda into a super middle reliever, you know, kind of. It's it's a it's an excellent way to use a, a pitcher. He, Sam and I have talked about. It's probably the only reasonable way to use Tyler Chatwood if you're stuck having to use him. And Sam is always harping on the fact that that's how the how the Cubs should use Adbert Elzelay because. Obviously, Edbert didn't pitch very many innings last year, and you're not going to want to step him up to a full-time starter workload, even if he st- could stay healthy for an entire year. So why not use him like that? Well, that's what the Dodgers did with Maeda. They basically said, okay, well, you're going to make spot starts, but mostly we're going to use you in high-leverage relief 
uh, outings where you're going to make, you know, pitch an inning or two or maybe even three. And that was all well and good, and it certainly helped the Dodgers on the field, but it basically screwed Maeda out of most of his bonuses. He didn't qualify for lots of them. And But at some point, I'm sure, obviously, he would like the money, but at least he was still pitching where he wanted to pitch. And then they traded him from sunny California to uh, lovely Minnesota, where the state bird is the mosquito, and they're shoveling snow off their cars in the morning until July. So I just think that was funny. But, gee, why, why do we think players don't trust management? I have no idea. How does the bets trade affect the couple? In the near term, or the most immediate one, is it makes the Dodgers, who were already really that should, that it's really not hard. You don't have to make a, a, a large leap of logic to think that the Cubs are going to make, going to are trying to make a similar trade with Bryant. In other words, okay, if we're going to get under the salary threshold and we want to keep Javi and we want to sign Rizzo to an extension at some point, we need to get, we can't just get under it. We've got to get under it. Uh, because for all the talk about how, well, they just want to get under for a year and they'll reset it and then they'll go out and spend, they want to get way under it so they can stay under it. And I don't think there's any doubt about it. Now, will they do the thing where they get under it for a year, go over it a little bit for a year or two, get under it, go over it? Yes, I could see them doing that. But I, obviously, if they had a, an opportunity, they would love to you know, really get under that damn number. So that it starts to make you really worry that the, the Cubs are going to make a trade where they trade Bryant and they attach a bad contract. Uh, which at this point, given that you is actually pitching pitched really well last year and they really need him, the only bad contract that they've got is Jason Hayward. And as we found out, because he didn't at the second time in a row that he didn't use his player option, that kicked in a limited number of teams twelve that the Cubs can trade him to without his permission. And they need to kind of hurry up and do it because he's getting close to his 10 and 5 rights. So now is the time to trade Jason Hayward unless you want to just keep him for the final three years of his deal, which I don't know why you would. Seems like a hell of a nice guy, but if you're going to pay that much money for somebody, you'd like to have a guy who is a hell of a nice guy and a hell of a productive player, and he's not. So would a would a Bryant Hayward deal be as light in return as Mookie and David Price was? Probably not, for the only reason that while Bryant's not quite as good as Mookie, because really only one guy is, he has two years left. So you should be able to extract a little bit more. Um, obviously, you you could get a nice return for him if you didn't attach the albatross of a big contract. But as we've said over and over and over again, really the trade you ought to be looking at making for Chris Bryant is none. You know, you do not play in a division that is a juggernaut. There are good teams in it with Chris Bryant on the Cubs. They're just as good as anybody else in the division. You should be looking to add to this roster, not take the second best player off. But I feel like we've done that podcast nine times. So everybody knows that it's at least my take and the take of the people who've been on this podcast, Bruce Miles, Sam Fells, everybody else, that uh, it's batshit crazy um, to want to do that. So really there are, if if they're going to trade Chris Bryant this year, which God, I hope they don't, there seems like there's kind of three key dates to keep an eye out. Uh, one of them is coming pretty quickly. Uh, the Cubs pitchers or catchers report next week. Position players report on the 16th. If you want to avoid the awkward, um, hey, he's in camp for how long, you make a deal before spring training opens. That Honestly, that's not that important. Um, Chris is a grown-up. He handles things very well. The Cubs, for all of the crap that we give them, 
um, you know, they're not going to create an uncomfortable atmosphere. In fact, it's, it, they absolutely don't want to. Uh, he'll get asked the questions and all the rest of the stuff, but I don't think it's that big a deal. Then there's, do you try to trade him before opening day? The thought probably is, unless there's some team suffers a massive injury and now they need, um, they're willing to, to give up a lot to get a third baseman, who's not Nolan Arenado. Um, there's really very little difference in trading him right before spring training starts and right before spring training ends. So then we're pushing it to the trade deadline. And the Cubs, that seems to be the most sensible one, Cubs start the season, see where they are sometime in July, and hopefully they like, damn, we're good. So we're not trading him. Um, but, you know, if if the David Ross experience is as big a clown show as, as some might fear, um, maybe you look at it, and in July, you get a couple of teams bidding against each other, and you get a nice return. There is, of course... A concern with that, and that's that over the last two years, Chris has gotten off to great starts and then gotten hurt. And this is he apparently still doesn't know how to slide. That should be one thing they work on with him in spring training. You do run the risk that you start the season and he gets hurt again, and then either the return becomes non existent or you just can't do it. And now you're looking at trading him in the offseason, but now you're looking at trading him in the offseason based on three consecutive injury-plagued seasons. And now he's only got the one year left. Um, I think that his two injuries are were kind of freak. So I, I wouldn't really go into this season concerned that it's going to happen again. But these are the Cubs, and it's the kind of shit that happens to the Cubs. Then th- there's another part of it, though, that is probably the real motivation behind the Cubs' preference. I should say, if the Cubs' preference is to trade him before the season, here's why. This is a ridiculous reason, but I could absolutely see it being true for them. What happens if the Cubs open the season with Chris Bryant in the lineup, and it turns out they're really good? Like, they're leading the division good in July. Well, you kind of can't trade him then. And if your whole sole purpose was we need to get under the luxury tax threshold, but now we're contending and we've got the whole Theo BS about every season is sacred, it'd be very difficult to trade him. So in a completely, you know, kind of bass backwards Cubs logic, they may not want to trade they may not want to keep him going into the season just because they might actually be good. And then it makes it very difficult um, to make that trade. Now, granted, given the pitching staff they have, <clears throat> maybe that's not a real um, concern. And one of the things I was going to say about it was, you run the risk of alienating the fans. But honestly, if the Cubs have any... Remember the... Uh, for those of you who are old enough, when Dallas Green came in to run the Cubs in the eight in the early 80s, uh, they came up with a new slogan. It was building a new tradition. Basically, Dallas came in, he was right, said the Cubs have a tradition of uh, being losers, so we're going to build a new tradition. If you follow that, the one of the, one of the new traditions the Ricketts family has built has been exactly that, alienating Cub fans um, by suddenly, in the middle of a contention window, being cheap. Um, they're, they're kind of... This, I can't see, can't really... It's their, it's their right to do this, but it seems a little skeezy. They're overt right-wing politics. Um, dad's Islamophobia. Todd's tax evasion. Uh, their uh, new recent history of fostering domestic abusers on the roster and uh, and then the whole uh, Daniel Murphy thing which they just completely botched so it doesn't really seem like they're that concerned <laughs> about making us all 
uncomfortable. And trading Chris Bryant in the middle of a good season uh, really would just add to that legacy. So one of the things that happened uh, yesterday, I think, maybe it was even just today. Um, but uh, Fangraphs put out their Zips projections for the Cubs. And um, the Cubs, actually, the projections were probably a little bit better than I think a lot of us um, assumed they would be. Um, the one thing you get when you look at it, though, is that this if this is a really, when healthy, with a big asterisk, it's a good offensive baseball team. But we should know that, you know, if a team that has Anthony Rizzo at first base and Chris Bryant at third base and Javi Baez at shortstop and Kyle Schwarber in left field and Wilson Contreras catching... That's a that's a core that not a lot of teams have. So it makes it very attractive. Now the pitching gets a little bit. Ugh. They've got you as the um, as the far and away best. Um, well, no, he's not. <coughs> Excuse me, I take it back. You and Kyle Hendricks are clear one and two. Um, then there's a significant step down to Quintana whatever's left of our beloved Johnny Lester. And then um, they have Chatwood listed as the fifth starter, which just makes me, it just gives me the willies. I just, I just hate watching that guy pitch. Um, or you could, they could also go with the uh, 83 mile an hour stylings of Alec Mills. And then nobody really has any idea what to think about this bullpen. They've just been assembling, uh, you know, uh, Basically, uh, they've been either assembling guys who were good a year or two ago or guys who have simply been minor and major league mediocrities who they think they've seen something in. They're going to get them in their fancy little pitch lab and then uh, they'll fix it and everything will be all great. So, you know, who knows? But one of the interesting things is when they do this, uh, Fangrass likes to they do a, uh, they do a comp for every player. And uh, they made all of us very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, when their number one comp for uh, rookie sensation, I guess you don't know if we'll be a sensation or not, Nico Horner was maybe, well, I hesitate because there have been so many. I was just going to say that he's the dumbest cup player of all time, but I can't go that far because that list is just too long, but certainly one of them, when they listed the number one comp as Ronnie Cedeno. It was like a cruel joke. Um, one of the cool ones, though, um, their number one comparison, Javi Baez's number one comparison is Hall of Fame shortstop slash center fielder Robin Yount. Um, the Kyle Schwarber one is Dan Pasqua, who is probably best known as having a couple of good years with the White Sox where he hit a lot of homers, and then uh, FedExing... Uh, marijuana to himself and having the package open up and having to go spend a little time uh, in a lockup. Um, I'll be honest, Wilson Contreras, number one comp, is a guy who I don't know who the hell it is. Bruce Edwards. So that seems great. Uh, Jason Haywards is Terrence Long. And honestly, it that's probably perfect. Of course, um... The one that caught my eye is for catching prospect uh, Miguel Amaya, number one comp, the great Hank White, Henry Blanco. So Miguel Amaya, now my favorite cub. And it's, they list guys, if a, if a guy played for the Cubs last year and hasn't officially signed with a team yet, they leave them on here. So we're, we're left to look at the, <clears throat> at, uh, some unpleasantness. We have to look. Addison Russell is still on the list. We thankfully don't have to worry about that. Um, but it's interesting. Then pitching wise, um, it's just always interesting how the numbers shake out. They have really good numbers for you across the board, but when it comes to project his wins and losses, which is honestly is not the strength of this. Um, so he's going to pitch to be. He's going to pitch to be the best Cub, 
based on he has the lowest ERA. Um, he has the most strikeouts. He's got an excellent strikeout to walk um, mark. And they have him going 8-5. and five. <laughs> While they have Kyle Hendricks and Jose Quintana both winning 12 games and Johnny Lester winning 11. Uh, so that was interesting. They do predict a uh, a decent bounce back for Craig Kimbrell. Um, which, honestly, I think we all we all expect, but we expect it with very little evidence. Um, the idea that, well, he just needs a full spring training. And then everything will be fine. And maybe it will be. Um, but maybe you've got X amount of pitches in your arm, and he's already shot off most of the good ones. So it's... Uh, it's a little hard to tell, but it's just it's it's interesting um, to take a look. I'll put a link to this on the on the post on Decipio uh, to go with the podcast, and you can read through it at your own leisure. Um, you know, really, it's we we will spend a lot of time when the Cubs go to spring training next week um, talking about who's going to win the fifth starter job, who's going to win the bullpen jobs. And but really, what we know is that unless they trade Bryant, their um, their lineup is set. <clears throat> At least for you know, we'll probably set with platoons, but still set. Um. <clears throat> so really, that's they know who the first four starters are. If everybody stays healthy, they know who their infield is. Except, I guess there are questions at second base. There's been some talk about them bringing in a left-handed um, compliment, I guess, at second base <coughs> because Daniel Descalso is like a—he's the opposite of a compliment. I guess he's an insult. He's a left-handed insult playing second base. Um, so if the idea is to send Nico Horner to Iowa to start the year, uh, probably legitimately because his call-up last year was basically because of an emergency. He hadn't played, he hadn't spent any time at AAA. So, I think the idea is opening day, your second base is going to be David Bodie. You'd be well-served to have a left-handed compliment to him. So, in recent weeks, they've been connected to, um, we had the whole Scooter Jeanette rumor, now it seems to be the rumor we're hearing is Jason Kipnis, which, you know, Naperville kid uh, hit a home run at Wrigley in the World Series. I'm sure he lived out most of his dreams. He hasn't been any good, though, since that World Series, which I guess makes it perfect because he'll be cheap. So they may do something like that. Um, but the outfield, Schorber's going to be in left, Hayward's going to be in right, although... Yeah, given his numbers, Hayward should only be in right field against right-handed pitchers. He's he is a helpless baby fawn at the plate when there's a lefty on the mound, and you're just you're wasting everybody's time for every at bat you give him. So that I guess is Steven Souza Jr. or maybe senior. I don't know one of them. Does he have a kid? Maybe Steven Souza the third can go out and play there. And then center field right now looks like as distasteful as it could be, it looks like it's a platoon of Ian Happ and Albert Almora. Why you would need to platoon um, with a switch hitter, I don't quite know. But apparently we are cursed to watching Albert run around center field very slowly for quite a while. Maybe, maybe they've actually gotten rid of him, but it's going to take him like three years to actually run off of the roster. That's entirely possible. So, um, basically, if you want to, if you want to do kind of a spring training uh, preview, what you're going to see next week, uh, lots of footage of guys playing catch. It's very exciting. Um, it's too bad. I don't know why the Marquee Network is waiting till the 22nd to get started, because you really you could do like a good six eight hours a day next week of guys playing catch. It just seems like it's probably just as exciting as about anything else that they're going to have on that network. So today was shifting gears rather abruptly. Um, today was the NBA trade deadline. If you're a Bulls fan, you wouldn't know because nothing happened. And really, why would you want to mess 
with the tremendous roster that they put together. The roster that... Um, actually, for the longest time, they'd only won one game against winning teams. Now they've won three, only because Memphis, who they beat twice when they had a losing record, now has a winning record. So that tripled the amount of uh, wins against winning teams that the Bulls had. There was a lot of talk that there were at least two players the teams were interested in. Thaddeus Young, for reasons that make sense. He's a good, versatile player. He's a vet. He has play he has playoff experience. Um, he's being wasted on um, not a good Bulls team. He signed with the Bulls because they would give him the most money, probably with the idea that after during the first year, maybe after the first year, he'd get traded to a contender. Uh, it seemed like a perfect time to make a move, and they didn't. And then, for less, I, for reasons that are less clear, uh, Denzel Valentine. Now, Denzel is not a bad player, but Denzel is a uh, has the game of a 50-year-old at the Y. Uh, not a great handle, no quicks, absolutely no hops. Uh, smart player, good passer, good shooter. I suppose there's a playoff team out there that could probably use him, but it wasn't really a shock. And then, but really the one that um, that surprised me was that teams weren't busting down the d- the door to get uh, our boy, the Gummy Bear, um, Cristiano Felicio. Now, the Gummy Bear, that may be the most perfect nickname in sports. Because if you look at him, he is the human version of a Gummy Bear. If, if, uh, if you were rubbing a lamp and a genie came out and you happened to be eating gummy bears and you pointed and had them make a gummy bear into make it real, you'd get our boy Felicio. Um, but nobody wanted him. It's really stunning. Um, then there were also some... I heard a couple of rumors about uh, Frank Cornette, I think started by uh, Frank Cornette. If not by Frank... Then by Will Purdue, who actually played at Vanderbilt with Frank Cornette's dad, they were the they were Vander Vandy's edition, or version of the Twin Towers, a couple of slow white dudes um, who happen to be tall. Uh, Frank's still around, I think, mostly because Gar Foreman keeps him around in case he needs anything, he needs to be get something down that's on a high shelf. Uh, although I'm sure Frank drops pretty much everything that he's supposed to get down for Gar. Our good friend Dave Kaplan maintains that the Bulls are going to make big changes in the front office after the season. And so, really, it's not a big deal. They didn't make a deal at the trade deadline because would you really want Gar and Pax making decisions, making long-term decisions right now, when they're not going to be making long-term decisions in a few months? That may be true. Um, Seems unlikely given the fact that the Bulls have never shown any inkling to uh, get rid of either guy. And if that's the case, why would you possibly need to wait to fire those guys? Why wouldn't you have done that a couple of months ago, brought in some new guys who could have looked at this roster, and then the trade deadline could have been their time to make the decision. Do we want to make any moves right now, or do we just want to hold... um, so I don't know that I buy any of that. In fact, I, I don't. And then some more breathless reporting today uh, from Joe Cowley of the Sun-Times was news that he seemed to think was you know shocking, which I can't imagine shocked anybody, is that Lowry Markkinen is really frustrated being on the Bulls playing for Jim Boylan and is not interested in an extension. And as soon as he can become a free agent, he wants to get the hell out of town. All you have to do is look at him, watch him on the bench, watch him in the games, watch him, pretty much watch the whole team. Nobody wants to be there. If you're good enough, where when you become a free agent, another team will pay you real money to go play for them. Of course, that's what you're going to want to do. So I don't, not sure why that was treated as though it was, you know, earth shattering. It just seemed to be confirmation of something that seemed really, really obvious. And then the last NBA thing I want to talk about tonight is uh, 
the Pelicans were in town, so Zion Williamson was uh, playing against the Bulls. And I want to get really in-depth, really analytic about Zion and seeing him play an entire game for the first time that I've seen him. Um, you might want to get a pen and paper and start writing some of this stuff down because I think it's pretty profound. He's really fucking good. So, you got that to look forward to for as long as his body holds up, which hopefully is a long time because he's awfully fun to watch. And he's he's really good. Uh, so, last sports thing I want to talk about tonight. Um, the uh, I don't know if you remember. It seems like it was a long time ago. But on Sunday, they had a Super Bowl. Kansas City Chefs won. Uh, they beat the 49ers. Um, when uh, the Niners, basically, with about 10 minutes to go in the game, said, we're good. Shut it down. And then they uh, end up... Take, they were leading by 10 points at the time. They lost by 11. I'm not bitter, considering I had bet on them to win, which really, in hindsight, was stupid, given that the Chiefs had, by far, the best player on the field in Patrick Mahomes. And he did not have a good game until the last 10 minutes when, all of a sudden, he was awesome. And, uh, and the Chiefs won. Um... So I was going to do a whole XFL preview uh, because that starts on uh, Saturday. But fuck that. Nobody gives a shit about the XFL. I'm sure I'll watch from time to time because it's sports and it's it's on. Um, but once once baseball teams start playing fake games, um, really don't need football teams playing somewhat real ones. But there was an interesting thing in The Athletic. I know you may have heard of The Athletic. Um, by the way, don't forget, every Monday morning, or eh, Monday mid-morning, Monday early afternoon, whenever John Greenberg gets around to posting it, is my cup of coffee. But in The Athletic, uh, in the football section, um, there was a uh, some dot connecting. Uh, in a column about uh, 20 bold and not-so-bold predictions for the upcoming off-season by uh, Shile Kapadia. One of his, I forget which number it was, that's really not that important, um, was that the Chicago Bears, your beloved Chicago Bears, would acquire Nick Foles. And you're like, yeah, Nick Foles. Uh, he makes a lot of money. Well... He's kind of drawing the, uh, trying to to equate what happened last year with um, Ryan Tannehill leaving the Dolphins and going to the Titans to be the backup there, even though going there knowing that you know he had a pretty decent shot at some point to unseat the starter Marcus Mariota. The idea that if the if the Jags really think that Gardner Minshew and his groovy mustache are the future at quarterback there. And really, they might be. He's certainly not a bad quarterback. And if you can get a good to somewhat good starting quarterback on a rookie salary, it's a huge advantage. So the the Jags would have to do some salary cap gyrations um, and could trade Foles to a team like the Bears eat a bunch of that money up front and get it cleared off. It's what it's what the Dolphins did last year with Tannehill. And so then the uh, then the Bears would get Nick Foles. And the dot connecting was that Foles has a couple of direct connections to the Bears, notwithstanding the fact that he was the the winning quarterback for the Eagles um, in the uh, wonderful double doink playoff game. And before Cody Parkey uh made himself immortal for all the wrong reasons. Uh, Foles had led a very long scoring drive against the vaunted Bears defense to uh, to take the lead. People forget, Bear fans, we don't forget, but there are people who forget that had the Bear defense just been the Bear defense, Cody never has to trot out on the field to kick that field goal because Mitch had thrown a go-ahead touchdown on the possession before the double doink, but the uh, the Eagles came all the way down and scored, and that was Nick Foles was quarterback them then because Carson Wentz was in a full body cast of some sort, 
Um, so that's, but that's not even the dots they're connecting because <clears throat> it's ridiculous to say we're just going to run and get a guy who beat us in the playoffs. Uh, but uh, the great Bill Lazor, L-A-Z-O-R, funky spelling, who is the new offensive coordinator for the for the Bears, which is an interesting job to have on a on a team where the head coach is is the offensive coordinator, just without the title. So I guess he's like assistant to the regional manager. Offensive coordinator. But anyway, Bill Lazor was Nick Foles' quarterback in Philly the first time Foles was in Philadelphia. Back with, um, they were running that, uh, the running their funky up-tempo offense. And it was 2013, he threw 27 touchdowns and only three interceptions. So he had, obviously, great success, at least in that one year. Then they traded him to the Rams, which really probably should have told you what you needed to know about what they thought of him. And then the new quarterback coach of the Bears, John DeFilippo, coached Foles the year that the Eagles won the Super Bowl. He was a quarterback when they won the Super Bowl, which he caught a touchdown pass from Trey Burton. And he was also the quarterback, he was also his offensive coordinator last year in Jacksonville um, until Jacksonville fired him. (laughs) Um, So there's some thought that the Bears obviously bring in a competent, proven NFL quarterback to to compete with Mitch. And if they do that, and it's it's a fair fight, uh, Mitch is going to lose that fight. So, and I just don't know that Ryan Pace and even Matt Nagy want to put Mitch in a situation where he can lose that. It seems ridiculous to me because it seems like a really good way to lose your job is to keep having Mitch try to play quarterback for you. But it's interesting, and we'll see. And Andy Dalton is another guy that's been connected to the Bears because he very well could just get released after the Bengals draft. Joe Burrow. Um, that's Nobody is excited. Well, Robert Mays from the ringer. There's one guy who's excited about the prospect of Andy Dalton playing quarterback um, for the Bears. The rest of us are not. So anyway, so there's your football um, on this podcast. Very exciting stuff. And I wanted to leave you with some recommendations. Uh, I t- tend to only do this now when I'm doing solo podcasts. Um, so given we're kind of in that no man's land, um, college football was over, um, pro football was winding down, and started looking for things to stream and found a couple of things that are not new. And you may, some of you are going to be like, yeah, we, I watched that three years ago. Well, whatever. Um, so two shows that I am currently streaming right now, both on Netflix. So you may have heard of it. If you have, if you have Netflix, uh, you can watch either or either or both of these shows. Um, the first one is one that I, I watched, I think maybe just the first episode a few months ago. And for whatever reason, it didn't do it for me. Or I just got distracted. Uh, and I, st- I stopped watching. Um, but kept hearing all these things about what a funny show it was and how I should watch it. With So I started, to, I got back into watching Schitt's Creek on Netflix. And it really is a tremendous show. Um, just very funny. Everybody in it is, everybody in it is good. Even Chris Elliott, who can wear pretty thin, pretty fast. Uh, they do a good job of using of deploying him at just the right uh, rate. Um, <clears throat> I didn't realize, excuse me, <clears throat> I didn't realize when I first started watching it that the entire Levy family is in it. I knew that Eugene Levy, obviously, everybody knows Eugene Levy, and I knew that Dan Levy, his son, um, was playing David uh, on the show. But then it turns out, I didn't know this for the longest time, that uh, there's a character who is the um, uh, she's the waitress in the one restaurant in town, Twyla, and she is played by uh, Sarah Levy. She's played by so the daughter is in it too, and she's actually pretty good too. Um, it's 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 just a it's a funny show and I, it was interesting to me I was I got I knew I knew I liked it when 
Um, so I watched the first episode, and then when I went to start watching it again, I don't know what happened, but it started up, I think, I, I couldn't remember how many episodes I'd watched. I really thought I'd watched three or four, and it turns out I think I really only had watched the one. So I started streaming again, and it started me for some reason at almost the end of season one. And, you know, it's a pretty basic setup. This is a, a snooty rich family that whose business manager embezzles all of their money. And they're stuck having to go to this crap little town that they never tell you if it's in the United States or Canada. I think it's supposed to be Canada, but they, they don't ever really tell you where it is. Um, although at one, t- at one point, there's an episode where the veterinarian, Ted, um, goes to Chicago for a conference and gets back pretty fast. So I'm not exactly sure uh, what that means. Um, but they end up having to live in this town, Schitt's Creek, which the dad had bought as a joke for his son. He actually bought the town back when they were rich and had half a million dollars in the bank, whatever. And they have to live in this crappy hotel and there aren't a lot of characters in it. So when I started, when it threw me in at the end of the first season, I was like, oh, that's weird. They didn't. They didn't show a lot of this stuff. You know, there were I could easily follow the plot. I knew who everybody was. I'm just feeling. I wonder why they didn't show that. I wonder why they didn't show that. Now I get halfway through season four, and I decide, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and watch some of the early ones again. Now that I know who everybody is and I know more of their backstory, and I realized it had skipped like six episodes. There were six in the first season I just hadn't seen, and it turned out it was it was delightful to all of a sudden have six more of these to watch. Uh, so I highly recommend it. It's a very good show. So now another show that I had not watched, and it was one that frickin' Netflix was constantly pushing on me. Like, you should watch this. You should watch this. Um, was Peaky Blinders. So I think there's five, season, five six-episode seasons of Peaky Blinders that I have to get through, and I'm in the middle of season two. It's an amazing show. I don't know if maybe the wheels fall off of it. Um... At some point, but at least what I've seen so far, it's just a great show. Um, it's set in uh, Birmingham, England, right after World War One. In fact, the most of the 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 blinders are a uh, are a a gang of, I guess they're all gypsies. I don't know. Um, <coughs> but. Uh, so they're a gang in England that is into all kinds of stuff, but especially uh, taking bets on horse racing and fixing uh, horse races. And the head blinder is uh, Cillian Murphy, who was the first, the bad guy in the very first Christopher Nolan uh, Batman. And the guy who's got these weird eyes, and it just drives my wife crazy. He's like, I can't look at him. Um, but he is... Um, He's great in it. Sam Neill plays an Irish cop who's out to get him. Um, I just don't want to give any of it away. It's uh, I think it's really good. Very well done. Uh, it can be a little violent at times, but um, I was going to just say that it's super easy to follow, but it's, it, it's only as because of the way I do it. I developed this habit a few years ago of when I watch British TV shows, I just give up and I turn the closed captioning on so that I can, if they say something I don't quite understand, or they, especially cities and other things, um, I just read it while it's up there. So I will just say, I will attest to the fact that uh, if you read along as you watch, it's it's very easy to follow. And so the last thing is not a thing to stream at all. Um, but I was a little skeptical of it coming back for yet another season. I think it's the ninth season, but it's been 20 years since it first came on. And the last season they did had great moments, but was really uneven. Uh, was Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I think we're only on episode, I think we've had three this season so far. And they've been great. Um, and they've even been fairly long. I think they've all been 40 minutes. Um, Larry is cramming um a lot into every episode and and where that I think had diminishing returns when they did it a couple of years ago maybe three years ago when the last season was actually on 
uh, it's so far it's all paid off. Couple of th- couple of uh, running jokes in it that I've really enjoyed is the idea, and it's it's so true. There, <laughs> um, Cub fan, funny man, Jeff Garland playing Jeff Green, Larry's um, agent, bears a passing resemblance for uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein, and <laughs> so it, they've used that to great effect so far this year. And then, it's not a running joke yet, but I like what they did in the last episode. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Marty Funkhauser, um, better known, a.k.a. Super Dave Osborne, a.k.a. Bob Einstein, Albert Brooks's brother. So yes, Albert Brooks's real name is Albert Einstein. Um, Bob Einstein died last year. And... So we were kind of wondering, how are they going to deal with Funkhauser's death on the show? So far, they've done it perfectly. They haven't dealt with it at all. Uh, Larry just made a passing reference to the fact that Funkhauser was on vacation in China. I was talking with my friends today, and I said, what I'd really like to see them do is just, as the season goes on, come up with with more ridiculous places that Funkhauser is on this vacation. And have Larry bitching about, what's he doing in Sri Lanka? They don't even have golf courses in Sri Lanka. Uh, or whatever. But they haven't had to deal with it yet. Um, as always, one of the fascinations with Curb is what actors play themselves and what actors play characters. Um, and so a, a good example of it, Richard Lewis plays himself, uh, most likely because he's been friends with Larry forever. But Richard Kind is playing a character. And it's kind of been... It's kind of been that way throughout, and uh, you know Ben Stiller played himself, David Schwimmer played himself, um, but sometimes you get even relatively famous actors not. John Hamm is going to pop up at some point this season. I believe he's just going to be John Hamm. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for that. So anyway, that's uh, that's what I had for tonight. Um, so we kind of covered it all from the Cubs to the Bulls to the Bears to you know to whatever. Um, so, uh, next week we'll be back, um, with at least one podcast and, uh, Cubs will be throwing white spheroids at each other down in Mesa by the time that we get back next time. And, um, we'll see if the roster has taken any more shape or if, um, Theo and Jed have finally gotten an offer that they can't refuse and start to ruin it. Um, you know, it would really be, this is supposed to be the time right now where we're super excited that baseball's back. And I'm sure some of you out there are, and that's great. Don't, you know, don't change your feelings on our account. But I know there's a lot of us who are like, eh, well, let's see what happens. And it's just not a feeling I thought any of us would have uh, the fourth season after they finally won the World Series. But that's kind of where we are. So, uh. So take it easy, and I will check in with all of you again next week. Thanks a lot.